One of my favorite things about Jesus, and one thing if you even have a cursory reading of the New Testament that I think will strike you about him, is his, his uncanny ability to spend time with, hang out with, interact with, engage with the quote-unquote sinners of his culture, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the, the low-down, broken people, that relig- the religious righteous establishment in that day, and oftentimes in our day, wanted nothing to do with. These are the people that Jesus is around. He's hanging out with them. In Matthew chapter 9, for example, he goes to Matthew, the tax collector's house, a hated guy, and there hangs out with a bunch of other people that are hated, that don't get his Bible, that don't get his law, that don't get his religion. He's there with them, engaging with them and interacting with them. And yet, he's also able to speak truth into their lives. He's also able to, to live out these beatitudes, these kingdom values that we've been studying together for the last couple of months. Jesus has an unbelievable ability to both, at the same time, maintain his ethics maintain his beliefs, live a life of faith, and still interact with a fallen, broken world. He does both of those things, and I find that remarkable about him. Part of the reason I think it's so remarkable is because I have such a hard time doing that. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when, you know, I grew up in the church, I've been in church most of my life, and I have multiple friends that aren't church, family members that aren't church, and when I'm around them, I find myself either tending to be judgmental and arrogant and thinking I've got it figured out and they don't, or being fearful and just sort of caving about what I believe and just going with the flow. I tend to either be uh, proud or uh, lacking in courage and oftentimes unable to maintain that uh, that thing that Jesus was so often able to maintain, the ability to, to believe and to follow God's law and at the same time to love those who know nothing of God's law. For me, that's hard. I bet, I bet that for you, that's hard as well. But that is exactly what Jesus here tonight, by his grace, is calling us into As I mentioned, we've been talking about what it looks like as a very young, very new church, as a community of Jesus followers, to live the life that he calls us to, to follow after him. And we've been looking at the Beatitudes, line by line, one by one, for the past few weeks. And we've seen that the Beatitudes reveal to us that the nature of God's kingdom is a a counterintuitive, topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom whose values differ significantly from the values of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus has said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to take my grace to change your heart. And it's going to take, oftentimes, you putting things aside that you value in this world. You might lose relationships. Last week we saw that we're going to undoubtedly be persecuted if we're truly following Jesus in this life. But now tonight, as we conclude this series, really the question that I want to put forward to us is this. Why? Why in the world are we supposed to do this? Why are we supposed to follow Jesus? Why are we supposed to live out the Beatitudes that Jesus is calling us into in these verses by faith? Why? I think that in Jesus' 
words here in verses 13 through 16 that were just read for us, we see a little bit of the reason why we as God's people, why you, if you're considering Christianity or if you've been a Christian for decades, are being called by the eternal, immortal God to follow this man, Jesus Christ. And here's really the fundamental reason why you are to follow him. This is really the main idea for the evening. Follow, we follow Jesus so that we can be different from the world for the sake of the world. Okay? We follow Jesus so that we can be different from the world for the sake of the world. That is the point that our Lord is making in these verses. And to make the point, he uses these two very well-known metaphors when he describes the people of God. He calls us, first, the salt of the earth, and second, the light or lights of the world. And so those are the two main ideas that we just want to spend a few minutes with tonight looking at together. First, I want to talk to you about what it means to be salt. And second, what does it mean to be light? You ready? Okay, so salt first. Jesus says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. He calls his disciples, those who were already following him that. Now, now what does that mean? Now, most of us in today's culture, when we think about salt, when I think about salt, I think about chips and salsa. And I want some right now as I think about them. I think about, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, Marianne calls this my dad's snack. At 10 o'clock, I always want something salty and watch Sports Center, you know, so I'll get some peanuts or some chips and salsa. We think of salt as a flavoring device, as something that adds flavor to our food. I had a colleague, this is completely off the point, but it's still funny. I had a colleague who used to go to eat dinner with me, eat lunch with me, and he would eat chips and salsa in Mexican restaurants, and he would pour extra salt on every individual chip. And my colleagues and I would look at him and be like, how are you alive? Like, this is unbelievable. There's enough salt on the chips, trust me. But salt really, in Jesus' day, wasn't primarily understood as, as something that added flavor to our food. Salt, on the other hand, in Jesus' day, was primarily used as a preservative. You see, in, in that world, the ancient world, deep freezers didn't yet exist. And so if you wanted pr to preserve perishable food, if you wanted pr to preserve meat, you had to put it in salt, and the salt would do the work of making the meat, the food, last longer than it would otherwise. And in that day, it was also possible for salt to, quote, lose its saltiness, as Jesus says here. And that's because oftentimes salt, the, I guess it's sodium chloride, I think that's right, I'm not a scientist, I didn't have that class in seminary. Sodium chloride, wasn't, it wasn't pure. It wasn't a stable compound. There's all sorts of different admixtures. And so it would, it, because of its instability, not do the preserving work. And so you had to make sure you had, a, I guess, a pure chunk of salt, of sodium chloride, if you really wanted to preserve the food that you wanted to last. So they had to be careful that the salt they were using was pure salt, was real salt, so that it didn't lose its saltiness. Now Jesus here makes use of that well-known image, the image of salt, a preserving tool in the ancient world, and he tells us that that is what we are. Following Jesus happens because we as the people of God have the duty, have the privilege to act as, as a preserving influence in the society in which God has placed us. I'm reminded when I think about that of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a 20th century German. He was a brilliant scholar, a brilliant pastor, a brilliant theologian who lived during the Third Reich when Hitler came to power in Germany in the years before World War II and then during World War II. And he eventually became a spy. By the way, there's a book, a biography on him by a guy named Eric Metaxas. This is Luke's book of the week. Uh, it's one of probably my 10 favorite books of all time. Eric Metaxas Bonhoeffer, incredible read, uh, and it lays out his story. He became a spy against the Nazis and was eventually um, killed in a concentration camp because of his spying and because of his faith. But for our purposes tonight, one of the things that Bonhoeffer did that was amazing is that as, as Hitler rose to power and as Germany began to get armed for World War II and as things were going really, really downhill really, really quickly in the middle of the 20th century in Germany, the church of Germany, the Protestant church of Germany, Germany which was the state church, really was just following right along with Hitler. It's one of the great tragedies of the story of the Second World War that the German church, by and large, didn't stand up at all to Hitler or to any of his evil teachings and his racism, except for a few. Bonhoeffer was among them, along with some other very well-known and reputable theologians, along with thousands of people whose names we'll never know until we get to heaven. And they separated out from the German national church and created what was called the Confessing Church. And really what they did was just live the normal Christian life. The sort of life that you and I are trying to live. They tried to teach their children about Jesus. They tried to read their Bibles. They tried to pray. They tried to gather for worship. They just happened to be doing so in a culture that was increasingly opposed to them. And one of the interesting points of Bonhoeffer's life is that as Germany slid and slid and slid further into self-destruction, Things weren't nearly as bad as they could have been had the confessing church not existed. You see, there was a remnant, there was a portion of the people of God that even in a culture like Germany that was as difficult in that day as it was, served as salt, as a preservative, preventing further decay in that particular culture. That is what Jesus is calling us to here. You know, another example that's more common, that's probably fresher in our minds at VBS this week, you know, I was, I was watching. Every day I'd just come and I'd, I'd watch and I'd, I would observe. And, and as I was thinking about this sermon and observing VBS, I was thinking, you know, this is us acting as salt and light. Think about those, those children that were there that, for all we know, might never have set foot inside of a church. They might never hear the name of Jesus mentioned again in their lives. But they were there that week. They were loved by us. They were cared for by us. They were spoken to with dignity and with love and with encouragement by our team. They were told the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very simple, mundane, week-to-week, day-to-day things like that are us acting as salt. Us acting as a preserving influence on the culture in which God has placed us. So salt means that we are to preserve. We are to prevent things from being as bad as they could be. And one more thing to see about salt. Salt is, it's a common thing. Now Jesus doesn't say here, you are the paprika of the earth. He doesn't say you're the, or as I put it earlier, the oregano of the earth. I know, I'm very sophisticated. The oregano of the earth. He says you're salt. You're common. You're not doing anything super extraordinary, and you're distilled all through culture, living out the life 
that following Jesus means. And in your doing that, in the day-to-day, you are preserving the world that we live in. Although it seems in many ways to be sliding into despair, you acting as salt in your day-to-day lives are acting as an influence that is creating more good and more flourishing than would happen if you weren't doing what you're doing. Salt's common. So Jesus also says, however, that um, it's, it's important that the saltiness not lose its taste or lose its saltiness. If that happens, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So he's calling us salt of the earth here, and then he implies that it's possible, right? It's possible for us to lose some of that saltiness. It's possible for us as followers of Jesus to not live in a way that is as salty as Jesus would have. What do you think some of the ways are in which we lose our taste as salt? Well, there's a million. I'm sure you can think of more. Let me give you two big ones. The one, and for sure the primary thing that Jesus is thinking of here when he speaks of us potentially losing our saltiness is that we become indistinguishable from the world in which we live. We're no longer preserving decay, but we're we're being a part of the general cultural tide downstream and not really doing anything to stop the decaying trends that we see around us. We lose our saltiness when we engage so much in the world that we lose our distinct identity as followers of Jesus. And man, there's a billion ways in which that can happen. You know, one very common thing that you hear all the time in the media and among friends that don't know Jesus is that, is that our teaching and thinking and speaking about sexual ethics, for example, are just so remote from where culture is that they're so, um, they're so old school, old fashioned, they're irrelevant completely. And furthermore, oftentimes you'll hear people saying things like, and you guys are getting divorced and are as unhappy in your marriages as we are. Who are you to talk to us about how we should live our lives, about who and who we should and should not marry? And oftentimes they have a point because the church is undoubtedly guilty of losing our distinctiveness, losing our saltiness in the way we treat one another in the most important of all relationships, in our marriages. Another way in which we might lose our saltiness is is in our tendencies towards greed, we, we look more and more like the culture oftentimes when we refuse to give away all the money that we work so hard for, when we hoard it all up, when we spend more than we make in order to, in order to create more of a happy life for ourselves. We're looking just like the world when we do things like that. Another way we look just like the world is in our, our, our refusal so often to really engage in deep community and deep friendships with people. You know, most people in the world are sad. Most people in the world are lonely. Most people in the world go to work in the morning. They work hard. They come home. They pull into their garage. They eat dinner. They put their kids to bed. And then they watch TV for a few hours. They get up and they do the same thing again tomorrow. And they don't have many close friends. All too often. All too often, us as God's people are guilty of the same thing. We are losing oftentimes in many ways our distinctiveness. We're not being salty when we're engaging in the same things that the world so often engages in. And Jesus is warning us against that. But he's also warning us against losing our saltiness in another way. It's it's possible to lose our saltiness by being too much like the world, but it's also, I think, possible to lose our saltiness by being too separated from the world in the name of being distinct. 
you know, salt needs to be among decaying things if it's going to be doing its job. When salt is just lumped in a big pile with other salt, Jesus says here it's functionally worthless. And sometimes the tendency of the Christian church, rather than becoming too much like the world, is to completely separate themselves from the world and disengage entirely from the world. We, we ghettoize ourselves as Christians so that we have all our little things. And I've talked about this before. We have our own everything, our own clothing lines, our own little catchphrases. We have our own books. We have our own music. We have our own, we have our own mints. We've got our own everything. And that is a way in which we also fail to act as the salt of the earth. We fail when we lose our saltiness by becoming too much like what we're supposed to be preventing from decaying. And we fail when we completely pull away from the things that we're supposed to be preventing from decaying. You see, the salt of the earth is acting as salt when it is distinct from the world and in the world for the sake of the world. Jesus also calls us to be lights. So to be the salt of the earth means that you are acting as a preservative in the world, yet distinct from the world for the sake of the world. And when he tells us that we are the light of the world, he means something very, very similar. These are, these are parallel ideas here. But whereas salt acts as a preserving influence in the culture, light, according to the teaching of the Bible, is an illumining influence in the culture. Whenever the Bible uses a metaphor like light, it almost always refers to the idea of truth. And so when Jesus tells us here that we are not only the salt of the earth, but the light of the world, he's saying that those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, those of us who experience life in his kingdom, are, we are literally enlightened. We have had our minds enlightened. We have had our, the scales removed from our eyes so that, so that we see things how they really are because we believe that God is the sustainer of all things. We are the light of the world. And just as it is with salt, Jesus warns us against covering our light. You see that there? Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So the same thing with salt. Jesus is saying you're not being a light when you're living in the darkness just like the world lives in the darkness. You must be distinct. But he's also saying you're not being a light when you're only with light. Light presumes the presence of darkness. You're not doing the job of the light if you're not illuminating things and places that were previously dark. Just like you're not doing the job of salt if you were not among things that were previously decaying. So we must beware and be on guard and, and be thoughtful about how we are engaging the world as lights, speaking truth. Living out the truth of the gospel of Jesus, taking a stand on God's word, and yet doing it in a way that we can illumine the darkness with love. You know, there's, there's all sorts of examples in which we are guilty and the church at large is, is guilty as well of, of trying to be a light but not really shining very brightly or very lovingly. You know, I suppose it, 
it is speaking truth to go, say, maybe stand in the middle of downtown San Antonio and hold up a sign regarding your views on homosexuality, perhaps, and getting up and, and ranting out a sermon for 30 minutes. But that probably isn't going to be very helpful to truly illuminate people who are walking in darkness. You see, you see Jesus is calling us here to, to speak truth as the light of the world, but, but to speak truth in love. To speak truth in a way where people will be engaged and listen and hear. I think another way to put it is that Jesus is calling us here to both present ourselves and our gospel as believable and as beautiful. You see, as it, we're being lights when we, are, when we are living in a way where people don't just know what we believe because of what we say, but because people see what we believe because of how we live. People are going to experience the light of the gospel only when us as the lights of the world actually imitate it in our marriages and don't just tell people what marriage is, although we must do that too. People are going to see us as the lights of the world and see the light of the world as Jesus when we actually begin to be gracious and generous in the way we care about the poor, in the way we care about the burdened, in the way we care about the oppressed. People are going to see us as lights in the world, not just when we speak about community, but when we are deeply committed to being involved in one another's lives as a community. You see, people will see us as the light of the world, not just when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, but when we are a people together who don't gossip about one another, who don't stab each other in the back, who don't slander one another, who go to one another personally when we have issues with each other and ask for forgiveness and say we're sorry and who forgive. When we when we intentionally cultivate opening up our lives and the walls and the doors of our homes and inviting people in even when we don't have it all together. You see, those are the sorts of practices that are going to make us truly be lights in darkness. One of our core values at Christ Church is to be a church that engages in missional living. And that's exactly really what Jesus is speaking about here. We are to be... A people, we, we long to be a people who are firm in what the Bible teaches and who are being transformed by the power of the gospel and in that are engaging others in love. What can that look like for you? Maybe it looks like next time you have someone in this church over for dinner, invite your neighbors to. Maybe it looks like when you, when you go hunt, bring a friend that doesn't know Jesus and a Christian friend and just get to know one another. Maybe it looks like when you go play basketball, being sure you take a couple of friends that don't go to your church and you know don't go to church anywhere and a couple of friends that do. Maybe it looks like hanging out in the places where darkness is and yet maintaining your light with wisdom and with courage. I don't know what it looks like for all of us, but we must be thinking of these things. That's what Jesus is calling us to. The reason we are to live out the Beatitudes, the reason we're to follow Jesus is so that we can be both distinct from the world and yet engaged in the world for the sake of the world. One last thing. One last thing I want you to see, and this is, this is crucial, so don't miss it. Jesus does not say here, and I want you to notice this, he does not lead like this. Be salt. And be light. Now, don't misunderstand me. He does tell us to live in that way. But how does he lead? He says, 
you are salt. And you are light. He tells us, you see, what is already true of us by virtue of our faith connection with Jesus before he tells us how to live that out. And so we as the people of God must leave this place not thinking my main job is to go be salt and be light. No, we must leave here thinking because of faith in Jesus, I already am salt. I am now the light of the world It's simply my job to live that out amongst those who don't yet know the Savior. You see, when you understand that it's primarily the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus has done that makes the difference in your life, only then will you really be able to begin to act like salt and like light. And I think that's hinted at here further when Jesus, notice what he says there when he says, you are the light of the world. He says, we are are lamps. A lamp shouldn't be hidden under a basket. In other words, your light is not originating light. Your light is is dependent light. You are not creating light. You merely are a resource wherein light dwells. Jesus is, as he says in John 8, the light of the world. You are merely a lamp that reflects his work in you. And as you believe and reflect the gospel in your life, you are more and more doing what he's calling you to here and acting as salt and acting as light. You know, it's it's impossible to stare directly into the sun. I'm sure a lot of you kids might have tried that. I tried that when I was in high school, one of many foolish things I attempted to do in high school, and it didn't go well for me, and it didn't last long. We can't stare directly at the sun. But we do see other lights that in many ways and in all sorts of intricate ways are reflections of the great light of the sun. We can look at the moon, for example, on a beautiful night when the sky is clear and the moon is lighting up the sky. But we know that the only reason we're seeing the moon and its beauty is because it's reflecting the sun. And really, that's a great example, I think, of what we're being called to do here. We're called merely to live in a way where we are reflecting in our lives as lamps, as salt, the true light, who no one can look at and live, but who through Jesus and through Jesus' body, the church, is even now renewing all things. Do you want to be part of that? That is what Jesus is calling us to, individually and together. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world Believe that that is true of you and then go and live like it by grace. Let's pray.